Turn with me, if you will, in your Bible to John chapter 20. It's near the very end of the book. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we want to give you one. There's, uh, there are Bibles at the beginning, at the, excuse me, at the, the end of each aisle right here in the middle. Uh, those, are, those are Bibles we'd love to give to you. You can borrow it for today if you already have one uh, and just didn't bring it with you. Or if you don't own a copy, please take it. We'd love for you to have it. And it'll help you to have it in front of you as we walk through the story today. There's some twists and turns to this story that you're going to want to be able to follow. And it'll be a lot easier for you if you can look down and, and, and follow it along as it's written. So uh, turn, when you, get, when, when, you, when you found a Bible located, turn to John chapter 20. We're going to be finishing up that chapter this morning. Where we are, dropped into a story that is ongoing. A story of Jesus and his life and his ministry, his teaching. And particularly now, where we drop in a story of Jesus as the one who is risen, who had died a real death, but who now is alive again, really, in a physical body that can be touched, seen and touched. What we're doing this morning in this part of, the, of, of John chapter 20 is, is something John has been doing with us ever since the very beginning of this book. So we've been in the book over a year now. And one of the first things we started seeing over and over again, just, just to refresh your memory if you were with us in the early part of this series, about this time last year, one of the first things we kept seeing John do was give us examples of Jesus meeting people and help us see how those people responded to him. I think the reason he was doing that is he wanted to give us a wide range of examples of what faith could look like. What would it look like for somebody like this character to hear Jesus' claims and actually come to believe in him? We saw him do it with a guy named Nathaniel who who came to him skeptical, not really believing that anything good could come out of the hometown where Jesus hailed from, who meets Jesus, sees that Jesus knows him backwards and forwards, and is convinced we saw it with Jesus meeting with a woman who was an outcast, even among outcasts in Samaria. A woman who Jesus met at the well, knew about her history, told her that he was what she'd been looking for. We saw her life redeemed and set on mission to tell other people about him. We saw Jesus encounter even a dead man, Lazarus, met him in the tomb, met with him and gave him life. We've been seeing Jesus interact with a wide variety of people and watching them respond to him. So we get a sense of what faith is like. And that's especially what John wants for us at the end of of chapter 20. Because here, it isn't just Jesus as any ordinary man. Some of the earlier encounters with Jesus, you could have been suspected for just a a, a kind of remarkable human. But human and simply human just the same. Here, John's showing Jesus as one who really was dead, but now is alive again. And here the effect on the people that he meets is, is altogether different. It's taken to a new level. And he wants us tracking with it because he wants us to see these people meeting the risen Christ because he knows that that for us to meet Jesus, we're going to have to go through the same thing they did. There's a lot that separates us from the people we're going to read about today. They actually got to see Jesus with their own eyes. That's something that we wish we had but don't have. But there's a lot that unites us to these people. We want the same things that they do. We feel the same needs that they did. We have the same fears that they had. And meeting Jesus is going to do the same things to us that it did to them. So whether you're a longtime believer in Christ or someone who is here this morning exploring Christ, maybe trying to decide whether or not Jesus is for you, what you're going to get this morning in the story we're going to unpack is a sense of what it would mean for you to connect with him. There's no one who really connects with Jesus who doesn't go through the same transformation that we're going to see these people go through this morning. I've used this before, so pardon me if, if, this, is, uh, if this is old news to you, but, but 
coming to understand and believe in Jesus as one who was raised from the dead is to come to a belief that's not like most beliefs. It's to come to a belief that philosophers call a life-involving belief. Here's the difference. So I believe that uh, Columbus sailed the ocean blue back in 1492, or whatever the jingle is. I have that belief. I was taught that. But it doesn't really affect my life at all. So if I found out that it was a guy named Chris, Christopher, I don't know, McCullough, like me, it wouldn't change, it wouldn't change much. If I found out it was 1493 and not 1492, not going to change much. Just like finding out that he landed in some island down south of here and not, you know, in, in Savannah, Georgia, didn't change much for me. I mean, that was kind of an awakening moment. I always thought he landed on the continental United States. I kind of felt gypped when I found out that he landed on some island that I've never been to. Anyway, not a life-involving belief. Not a lot changes if, if the content of that belief shifts a little bit. But, but you find out that your car gets towed, that your car's been towed. Well, that's a life-involving belief. Your life is not what it was. You are implicated. Something's just changed for you. That's kind of a bad example, isn't it? Meeting the risen Christ is not like finding out your car got towed, all right? Uh, meeting the risen Christ is more like finding you won the lottery, right? That's a, that's a, that's a belief that's, that's personally, that you're personally invested in. It changes things for you. Things are not what they were. And I think one of the great temptations for us, especially here in the South, and I know not all of you are from down here, but maybe something that you've noticed is that there is a pretty common generic Christianity that's sort of layered over a lot of what we experience, a lot of what we hear, just in our, in our culture at large. And one of the effects of that, I think, is that belief in something as radical as the claim that a person really died and actually came back to a bodily life becomes more like a belief that Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492 than a belief that you've won the lottery or had a car that got towed. We're not personally implicated in it. Things don't change for us. And what we're going to see in the story we're going to unpack today is that that just shouldn't be possible. Actually, let me, let me rephrase that. That is not possible when you actually meet the risen Christ. That's what we want to look at together this morning. I want to begin by reading our story. So if you would, please stand with me in honor of God's word. Uh, while I read from uh, John chapter 20, I'm going to begin in verse 19 and go all the way to verse 31. This is the word of the Lord. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he'd said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it's withheld. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. 
see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. To meet the risen Christ is to be transformed. This story shows us what that transformation looks like. It's a transformation from fear to gladness, from doubt to worship, and from aimlessness to mission. That's what I want to tease out this morning as we, as we watch the disciples meet the risen Jesus. We start from fear to gladness. That's in the first couple of verses of the passage we read. The story picks up on the evening of the day that Jesus rose again. Surely by now, Mary, the first person that he, that he encountered, has, has done what he told her. She's run back to his disciples. She's told them, I saw him. He's going to his father and your father, his God and your God. She's delivered her message now, surely. And, and one of the disciples who ran and saw the empty tomb, we were told by John, he had some sort of belief. I'm not sure exactly what he believed. He believed something. And yet here they are, same night, having heard what they've heard, seen what they've seen, and they are hunkered down. They're inside their home, somebody's home, and their doors are locked, and not just as a precaution, not just as some sort of cultural custom. John tells us why their doors are locked. Their doors are locked because they're afraid of the Jews, and they had good reason. They're afraid of those who wanted Jesus dead. They're afraid of the powers that be that had just crucified the one that they had looked to for life. And they knew, and were right to know, that the same powers that be that took down Jesus would want to take down them and anyone else who was with him. They had reason to fear. It's another example of John humanizing these guys. Time and time again, throughout this story, these key followers of Jesus, the disciples, the, one on who, the ones through him, he's going to build the whole church They are shown to us by John with crystal clarity. They are not some sort of supermen, right? They are are not responding to the things that that are happening in their lives any different than any one of us would respond to the same things happening to us. They are human, entirely human, and they respond like we do. And there there are few experiences as basic to being human. Few experiences so basic as fear. Fear comes from that gap between what we want but don't have the power to provide for ourselves, what we love but don't have the power to protect, the gap between those things and, and our own limitations as humans. We, we know what we want We know we're too limited to provide it for ourselves, and so we're afraid that we might not have it, might not be able to protect it. All of us are limited in what we know, in what we can see about the future, in what influence or control we can have over the things that affect us. And so fear comes to 
All of us. I'm not especially predisposed to, to anxiety. I have a lot of other things I struggle with. But I'm a generally laid back guy. Probably to a fault even. I, I tend to think things are going to work out okay. But not a day goes by that I don't know fear. It's true for all of us. From, from trivial things, right? We fear that our favorite sports teams won't be competitive. Or that it'll rain the week we're going on vacation to the beach. We're afraid of sinful things. There's not one of us who doesn't fear that in one way or another we won't be able to make a name for ourselves. There isn't one of us that doesn't fear that our actual life, our actual life, won't measure up to the life we have imagined for ourselves. And there are a lot of things that I'm afraid of that I wish I wasn't, but just can't seem to avoid fear for. I'm afraid that, that our church, that I love with everything, won't thrive over the long haul. Sometimes I'm afraid of that. Sometimes I'm afraid that some of you are going to move away. Sometimes I'm afraid that one of the members of my family will get a terminal illness. I'm afraid that my kids won't grow up and run to Jesus. Sometimes I'm afraid that, that my faith might fail before I die. There's not one of us that doesn't know fear as a living and active reality in, in each one of our lives. Fear a lot like what Jesus' disciples knew in their own way. And it's in the midst of our well-founded fears, fears that are just like yours, just like mine, just like the disciples. It's in the midst of our fears that the risen Christ meets with us and says to us, peace be with you. And when the risen Christ meets you in your fear and tells you to have peace, your fear will be transformed into gladness. Did you notice that's the essential before and after in this first part of the story? Jesus comes to his disciples. They're afraid. They are hunkered down. They are locked in. When they see Jesus, when he shows them his body, when he lets them touch the things that had been wounded on him, I love the simplicity of it. Then the disciples were glad. Now, what had changed? They were under no less threat from the people who wanted them dead. In fact, in fact, most of these guys that were in this room, we don't know exactly because it's all from church, most from church tradition that we can't be 100% sure of, but, but pretty much sure that most of the guys who were in this room would be dead 20 to 30 years from now because they'd been killed by the powers that be for being with Jesus. So what they were afraid of, it happened. But when the disciples saw Jesus, they were glad. What didn't happen is, is that they were delivered from the thing that they were afraid of, necessarily. What did happen is that they saw that a dead man could be alive again. One who promised them eternal life could not be held in the grave. And there is nothing that one who was dead but is now alive cannot redeem. There is none of the little deaths that we all experience day in, day out on the way to the final grave. There is no pain, nothing that we might be afraid of now that we cannot experience and see turned from death to life by the one who is now alive. That's what the disciples realize. That's what all of us will realize when we meet Jesus. Now, 
the point here is not to slap you on the wrist for your fear. If you really believed in Jesus, you wouldn't be afraid. So there, problem solved. That's not, the, that's not the point. The point is, friends, when you know what you're going to know, the fear that is going to come for you, when you feel fear, the point here is not that you should feel guilty about that fear, but that you should feel liberated from that fear. Now, that fear should be a trigger that reminds you of the risen Christ and of the promise through him that your fear does not have to define you. That there is nothing that can separate you from this one who could not be conquered by death. That you can face a future that you can't control. You can face the possibility of something you desperately want not being possible for you. And can still be glad because Christ is risen. Meeting the risen Christ transforms those who meet him from fear and captivity to it to gladness, gladness that's resilient. But there's more. There's more. The next scene tells us, tells us of another transformation, picking up in verse 24. And the focus here is on a disciple named Thomas. Poor Thomas. I mean, he chose a really bad weekend to be away, didn't he? All we're told is that he wasn't there when Jesus showed up. And you can imagine what those conversations are like when he gets back to his buddies. Dude, it was epic. We've seen the Lord. And Thomas, is, Thomas was not a bad guy. He gets a bad rap. Chances are, if, if you've known anything about Thomas before today, if this isn't the first time you're hearing about him, chances are you know him as Doubting Thomas. Like, that's the guy's name now. In, in the history of the church. Thomas the Doubter. He was known then as Thomas the Twin, but that got replaced. <laughs> I think it's a little bit unfair. I mean, he was, he was a good guy. He was definitely as committed as any of the others, and maybe even more so. Uh, he was just a sober guy, not so optimistic. Honestly, he was a bit of an Eeyore, if the poo reference helps any of you. One of the other times we see him, the other time we see him speaking, uh, Jesus has heard that his friend Lazarus, closer, who lived close to Jerusalem, was about to die, waits for him to die, then he goes because he's going to raise him again. But what they know, what the disciples know, what Jesus knew, is that people in Jerusalem wanted Jesus dead. And so Thomas can do the math. We go towards Bethany, just going towards Jerusalem, just going towards the people who want Jesus dead, which means we're all going to die. So they're pushing back. We shouldn't go there, Jesus. We shouldn't go there, Jesus. And Thomas finally just said, he just throws up his hands and said, well, he's going to go, he's going to go. We may as well go and die with him. Say that to yourself in an Eeyore voice. I'm not going to try it. And you get the sense of, of, of who Thomas was. Not a good guy. He was bought in. He was willing to die. But just kind of a realist, right? Not a naysayer, but a realist. And his response to what the disciples tell him is the realistic response. When you know from all of your experience that dead bodies don't come back to life. When you know that from all of your experience, what Thomas says here is the realistic response. Unless I put my fingers into his hands and his side. Unless I see those wounds, I will never believe. That's a strong statement, isn't it? 
And Jesus meets his friend in the middle of his doubt just over a week later. Verse 26 says that eight days later, once again the disciples were inside. Once again they had the doors locked. They're hunkered down because somehow they're still afraid. And this time Thomas is with them. And although the doors were locked, somehow with this body that just isn't limited in the way that ours are, somehow Jesus just shows up among them. And he says to Thomas the same things that he'd said to his friends before. Peace be with you. And if seeing a body that he had seen die, now stand here and talk to him, had not clued Thomas into the reality that Jesus was alive and not normal, surely it must have been the fact that Jesus knows exactly what Thomas had said and throws his words right back at him. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? He says to Thomas, here, touch. He heard him say that unless he put his fingers into the wounds, he was never going to believe. So Jesus offers himself up. Here, Thomas. Here's what you asked for. Is this what you wanted? Put your hands right here in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas's response is incredible. Think about it. Thomas is a realistic guy, right? The remarkable thing in this story is his response. I, I think that his response adds some weight to the things we talked about last week in more detail. Reasons that you should trust this story about Jesus' resurrection as, as believable historical evidence. I think we tend to think of people who lived back then as just gullible, easy to pull one over, the, over on them. They, they'd believe anything. Thomas is showing you that's not the case. This guy was like you. He was no more likely to believe anything about a, a body back to life than, than you were. Maybe he was less likely even, given some of the stuff we talked about together last week. He was skeptical in exactly the way you would have been. And in Thomas's response, we have... Not just a guy whose mind has been open to seeing things in a new way. But we have a guy who is now worshiping this human as God. Thomas was one of the least likely people in human history to ever believe that a human being could be God. Other religions of of the time had notions of the divine coming down into humans cooperating with them. Think of the Greek mythologies you had to read in college. There's all sorts of interaction between human and divine. But Thomas was a Jew. They knew who they were by their belief that God was one, that there was one God and no other, and that this God was so unapproachable, so big and transcendent, that to, that to enter into a place in the temple that you'd been denied access was to die, that to speak his name could bring death. Thomas was among the least likely in history to ever see a human being standing in front of him and believe that the Yahweh God of all creation is standing in front of me and I can see him. But that's exactly what Thomas says. When he sees Jesus, he falls down in worship. My Lord and my God. To meet the risen Christ, to really meet him, is to have your doubt, reasonable doubt, Transform into worship. Now, now here's what I bet you're saying. Here's what, I, here's what I've been saying to myself as long as I've known of this Thomas story. Easy for Thomas to say, right? 
I mean, in my doubt, what I want is what Thomas got. And I'm a little resentful that he got it and I didn't. I want to see the risen Jesus. I want to be able to touch him. Of course I'd know that he was Lord and God if I could just see him. But how can I be expected to worship him when I don't get the same evidence that that Thomas did? I think that's a fair question and a natural reaction to this story. There's a lot of things that could be said in response to that objection. But, but I only want to point you to something I think, I think if John was here, the guy who wrote this, and he heard you say that, then here's what I think he would say to you. I think what he would say is that he's already told us a bunch of stories of people who see Jesus do amazing things and don't believe in him. There were people there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, when he spoke words to a corpse in a tomb, and the result was that corpse walking out. People saw that and didn't believe in Jesus. Over and over again, even Jesus himself in John's story has criticized, or not criticized is maybe a strong word, but he's cautioned us about faith that's tied to signs. A faith that's only based in seeing something remarkable. That that's a kind of faith that doesn't last, it isn't true, it isn't deep. So I think what John would say to you is that you might have gotten what Thomas got and still not believed in him. Because what John has been saying to us about faith all through his story is that it's it's a matter of the heart as much as a matter of the mind. That the mind follows what the heart wants. That we justify to ourselves beliefs based on what we want in our lives and for for our lives. And that to believe intellectually that Jesus is risen from the dead, is to implicate our hearts. It's to, if, if he really is, if we really believed it, then he would have the right to command us. We would have to say, my Lord. And he would have the right to our worship, to our awe. And we would have to say, my God. And we don't want to say that to Jesus or to anyone else. I think that's partly what he would say. That before the risen Jesus will meet us in our doubts, we've got to get broken in the way that Thomas was. And we've got to be ready to say my Lord and my God to him. To worship him with everything that we are. Because he is not, he is not a subject or an argument to be mastered. He won't meet us as a trophy, an intellectual trophy to put on a wall some subject that we have figured out by our ingenuity and can now present to others as part of the evidence for how smart we are. He won't meet us for that. He'll meet us when we are the brokenhearted that God has always been close to, when we are those who are crushed in spirit and ready for a Savior. That's when He meets us. But He can meet you through the stories told by reliable eyewitnesses just as surely as he met with Thomas in the flesh. What we've got to look for here, what we've got to watch out for, is our tendency to approach the idea of a risen Jesus as a set of facts or arguments that we have to understand, learn, and master. Here's an example that might help. So, a few years back, because I know absolutely, I have no creative bone in my body. I can't even draw stick figures. 
I was trying to broaden my horizons a little bit, and I got interested in fine art, going to art museums and trying to understand what it is that I'm seeing. Um, and there's some help to be had there, right? A good, a good art museum will have descriptions of the piece that you're looking at, maybe have a little guide you can carry around with you that'll tell you like something about the period and what they were going for and how this one was different from this one. I remember, I remember one... Uh, I remember one experience, I don't remember if this was the Boston Museum of Fine Art or which one it was, we were, Lindsay and I were visiting this, this museum, and they had quite a few uh, paintings by Monet, and it was a really helpful exhibit because they had different eras in Monet's career, like early Monet all the way to late Monet, and what they, ex- what they explained to people like me who don't understand it is how different the brush strokes are. You can see some really broad ones early on that give you a pretty realistic view of what's going on. This is the guy who paints, about lily, paints a lot of lily pads. A lot of natural scenes that are a little bit fuzzy. Called an impressionist painter. So early on, he was painting with pretty broad strokes that looked pretty realistic, pretty true to life. But by the further his career got, he started using really tiny little brush strokes. I think I've got that right, not the other way around. And and the pictures became more abstract, a little bit more fuzzy. And I could see that. Me, untrained, knowing nothing about art, I could see it. That was fun. It was a learning experience, right? And typically, when I go into an art museum, that's what I'm looking for. What was the period? What was that school known for? What was the political statement that guy was trying to make about his king that he didn't like? or Whatever. I want it for a learning experience, which is to say, if I'm honest with myself, a lot of times what I'm wanting is some dinner party conversation, right? What I, what I want is a subject that I've mastered, one that has bent to my will. When what the artist would want for me is to use any new information I might get about that painting to fuel the awe that I experience when I step back and am brought into a world that was created by the imagination of a genius. What we're meant to experience in those moments is not a new subject that we've mastered, but the awe that comes from seeing something that is greater than we are, something that I could never have pulled off some, what, we're, what we're meant to feel, I think, is dwarfed by something big, beautiful, and wonderful. And the danger in knowing more is that in, rather than being dwarfed by it, rather than being made small by it, put in awe of it, I'm growing bigger by it. I'm bringing it into me rather than allowing myself to be subsumed in it. I think the same thing is going on here. What Thomas illustrates here is what it takes to go from doubt to worship. You've got to stop trying to put Jesus as a trophy on your wall. And you've got to be willing to be broken by him, to be made small by him, to see him for who he is and to stand in awe of him, to say to him the only thing that makes sense, to say to one who came, lived, died, and rose again, my Lord and my God. That's what it looks like to meet the risen Christ. You move from doubt to worship. Here's the last thing, the last transformation. This one I merely want to point you to. It comes in the the verses that we've moved past, the verses that Jesus speaks to his disciples when he shows up that first time. Verses 21 to 23. There's a lot here. There's some things here that I'm not even sure how to understand and that we don't have time to fully unpack. Jesus talks to them about receiving the Spirit. He talks to them about 
offering forgiveness and withholding forgiveness. I'm not sure exactly what that means. I, I, I do know that it feels to me completely out of step with everything else John has said to take it at what you might call its face value and say that Jesus is giving his followers the right to tell someone else they're not forgiven. One of the things John has been hammering over and over again is that Jesus is now the place where God meets with people. That he's the way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through him. That he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That you've got to meet Jesus. It seems out of, completely out of step with it to, to, to believe that, that any one person has the right to give or withhold forgiveness on their own authority. More likely, the best explanations that I've read suggest what he's saying here is that now, by his Spirit, Jesus is going to do his work through his people. He's going to send you out, his people, his followers, preaching the message of forgiveness, the message of the the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and that when they respond to you, to your message, they're responding to Jesus. To respond with faith is to be forgiven. To respond with rejection is to not be forgiven. Now all of that happens through Jesus' followers. I think that makes sense to me. But the one thing that's crystal clear here, whatever, however we might want to unpack the verse about forgiveness of sins, what's crystal clear here is that Jesus is taking some people whom he had found hunkered down without any sense of where to go, and he is sending them out for their life's true calling to be in the world what he came to be. Not to be the world's savior, but to proclaim the message of salvation to anyone who will listen. Jesus says to them, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, So as I came, now I send you. You're going to go and do the work that I came here to do. Only Jesus can take away sin. But Jesus' life was spent telling people that he takes away sin. Jesus' life was spent, what did he come to do? He came to preach to people who were thirsty and to tell them he could make them satisfied forever. He came to tell the hungry that if they eat from him, they will never die. He came to tell people who were facing death that he is the resurrection and the life. That's what Jesus came to do. So for us to be sent out like Jesus was sent out by his Father is to be sent out wherever we are, wherever God has placed us, is to be sent out on this same mission where our life's calling is now in in whatever capacity Jesus has put you. Our life's calling is to do his work, which is to say our life's calling is to connect people to Jesus wherever you are. So friends, this is what what I want to leave you with. This This is the note I want you to leave with and to think about and to start trying to, to drive into your own life. One of the most common experiences that all of us have, probably as common as the experience of fear, is the experience of futility. That the things we do with our lives, whatever it is that consumes your nine to five, just doesn't seem worth it. We struggle with the fact that, it, that every day just seems like a repeat of the last one. Like we never really get anywhere. Like our goals, we realize them and then they don't fulfill us and then they're replaced by new goals. That there's always more diapers to change, more meals to fix, more tables to wipe down. We, get, we struggle with the futility of it all. And even when we accomplish what we set out to accomplish, we realize that no one's going to remember it 50 years from now. What's the point? That's what it is to live in a broken world. This is what sin has done to the work that was supposed to give us joy. But friends, Jesus meets us in our aimlessness, in our futility, the risen Jesus. And he sends us out on a mission that's supposed to give meaning and life to everyone who owns him. Here's the point. 
He uses you wherever you are. If you're his, he uses you wherever you are. And wherever you are is no accident. It's not an accident that you have the job that you do, that you have the children that you do, that you have the family that you do. It's no accident that you have the people in your life that are in your life. God put you there. And he put you there not to, play, to toy around with you, but because you are the resource upon which he is building his kingdom. You are his strategic troops. He has put you, his strategic resource, right next to his strategic target. The hearts of everybody in your life. So, he put you where you are because the people in your lab are dissatisfied. They're thirsty like the woman at the well. They've been spinning their wheels seeking things that just aren't going to deliver. He put you in their life so that in their bitterness and resentment, in their dissatisfaction, you could tell them of the one who can give them a well of living water right inside of them. He's the one who gave you the neighbor whose father's dying of cancer with the news of one who is the resurrection and the life. He's the one who gave you your children. Children who are anxious or self-righteous or selfish or strong-willed or timid or afraid. Children who need to know of the good shepherd who's worth trusting because he laid down his life for the sheep. And he put you around all sorts of guilty people. Just guilty. Deep down guilty. He puts you around them with the news of forgiveness and cleansing and new life if they're willing to accept something that they don't deserve. Friends, if your life feels meaningless to you, it's not because you need another job. You might need another job, but that isn't why your life feels meaningless. If your life feels meaningless for you, it's because you need a clearer sense of the purpose to which Jesus has called you. You are his resource. You are placed on his battlefield for his purposes that you can fulfill right now. Nothing has to change except you and your perspective being transformed by an encounter with the risen Christ. It's a life-involving belief, friends. You don't stay the same if you really, if you really meet him. Have you met him? Father, one thing that your word has told us here in John is that no one can enter the kingdom. No one can see you and appreciate you in the way that we're meant to unless your spirit gives us new birth. We don't like that message. We'd rather be able to control it. But that's the message. And so what we... What we have is prayer. We come to you to ask you to help us believe in Jesus, to meet with him as his disciples did, to see him in these stories told by eyewitnesses and believe that they're true, to have our hearts captured by the truth of his resurrection in the way that these disciples had their hearts captured. This is what we want for ourselves, what we can't do for ourselves, and what we ask you to do for us by your grace through your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.